Welcome to the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, Live the Big Stuff podcast with New York Times bestselling author, Christine Carlson. Chris shares don't sweat wisdom to help you achieve greater mental health, self-compassion, and better communication with family, friends, and coworkers. Listen in and learn simple ways to live your most vibrant life of joy. Introducing the new You Can Be Happy training course, presented by New York Times bestselling author and podcast host, Christine Carlson of the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff series. Based on the early work of Dr. Richard Carlson, this digital course is designed to help people lead better, happier lives. In this five-module video course, you'll learn the five principles that will change how you live your life and improve all of your relationships. Get ready to improve your life in all ways, from your career, at home, to your health and well-being, and in all of your relationships. Based on the legacy work of Christine's late husband, Dr. Richard Carlson, that has helped millions of people all over the world lead happier, more fulfilling lives, this course will help you stress less and enjoy more. If that sounds good to you, head to our website at happinesstrainingcourses.com for exclusive access to our launch dates and more information. Hi, and welcome back to the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, Live the Big Stuff podcast. This is Christine Carlson. Before we begin, let's take our golden pause. So wherever you are, if you're able to sit, sit comfortably in a chair or sit Indian style on the floor. If you're doing an activity, just use this as a deep breathing exercise to bring you more engaged, more present in your body. So let's begin. Place your palms open on your lap, and if you're seated in a chair, please uncross your legs. If you're seated Indian style on the floor, just sit back and lean back, and just begin to breathe with me. Breathe in through your nose, allowing your chest and your belly to fully expand, taking in the maximum amount of that breath. As you exhale, just go ahead and let go and relax. This time as you breathe in, breathe in golden sunlight, pure golden sunlight to the top of your head, to the tips of your fingers and your toes, every cell of your being, pure golden sunlight. And as you exhale, just go ahead and let go of anything that doesn't serve you. Relax. This time as you breathe in, breathing in pure golden sunlight to every cell of your being, Place your hand on your heart, activating your heart, opening your heart, and just spend a moment thinking of one thing that you feel especially grateful for. It could be a person, a place. It could be just this simple moment right here, right now. And as you breathe in that gratitude, that golden gratitude, filling your heart, filling your core, filling your head, filling your whole body with golden gratitude, exhale and let go a little more. And this time as you breathe in that golden gratitude, one last really deep breath in, go ahead and exhale and open your eyes. 
All right. So today I have a very special guest. I'm very excited about bringing Dr. Daniel Amina on. He is a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist who earned his medical degree from the University of California, Los Angeles School of Medicine, and completed his general residency in psychiatry and child adolescent fellowship at the University of Hawaii Department of Psychiatry. He sees each client in the context of their family, school, and job and community. He enjoys working with children and adults and is well-versed in individual, family, couples, and group psychotherapy. He uses dynamic as well as cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal psychotherapy, family psychotherapy, and works to integrate pharma, pharma, whoa, <laughs> pharmacotherapy, <laughs> we'll ask him about that, <laughs> and alternative therapies to optimize brain health and function. He is experienced in anxiety and mood disorders, addiction, ADD, ADHD, impulsive disruptive behavioral disorders, autism spectrum, psychotic disorders, OCD, and PTSD. Welcome, Dr. Daniel Amina, to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on with us today. Thank you so much, Christine. It's a, I'm so excited to be on. Um, this is a, a blessing and a privilege. I've definitely looked on the work that you've done um, and just been so impressed with it. So this is exciting to be on today. Thank you. Well, I um, met Dr. Um, Amina in my quest to understand um, the Amen Clinic and the Amen Clinic and the services that it provides for um, a multitude of different um, issues that people might be having. Today, we're going to focus on um, children in this podcast and the child's brain. Um, I'm doing this because I really um, believe in what the Amen Clinic is doing. I think that it's powerful. I think um, it's right in there with the wave of the future of um, how do we really improve our quality of life on all levels and optimize um, everything about life, you know, and I've begun to understand that, you know, you can talk to people about how to live a great life and you can teach them how to live a great life. But if the brain isn't healthy, it's sort of like how the body, when the body isn't healthy, it's really hard to feel good. When the brain isn't healthy, I've understood, begun to understand that it's hard for the mind to operate in a healthy way. And so we're all about um, wanting people to optimize their mental health and well-being and access that. And that's why I'm really excited to talk about this topic today, because I know parents and grandparents like me, we're all concerned about how can we um, give our kids the best lives that we can. And yet all of us hit stumbling blocks along the way. Why? Because, you know, human beings are human beings. I mean, human beings are fallible. We have issues. We have problems. Um, there's a number of reasons why you might want to go to the Amen Clinic. And so I'm going to ask Dr. Amina to share with you, first of all, um, you know, so Dr. Amina, why would somebody come to the Amen Clinic? Like what kinds of the, what kinds of concerns do parents have and they bring their child to you? So excellent question. Um, first, the Amen Clinic was founded by Dr. Daniel Amen. 
uh, about 1989 or so. And since that time, his clinic and the model has been based on innovation in delivering psychiatric care. Okay. Initially, uh, psychiatric care was a very scripted model of things, you know, fill out some forms, get a diagnosis, begin uh, algorithmic treatment protocol. Um, and over the years, we've learned that that doesn't work for everybody. That algorithm may work for particular clients, but it doesn't work for other clients. And we started to wonder why. We started to find out that not all diagnoses, um, not everyone that presents with a particular diagnosis actually has the same underlying physiology or neurophysiology, which then took us back to the brain which should obviously make sense, right? Because your brain controls your behavior. So if, if there's a behavior-related concern, whether it's depression, anxiety, or whatever, or how you're acting with your friends or your family, how you're doing school, maybe something is happening brain-wise, which is one of the larger inter uh, innovations of the aiming clinics was using neuroimaging to actually look at the brain, see why someone may present a little bit differently than the other even though they technically have the same diagnosis. So someone could come in with ADHD, uh, uh, medicine may work perfectly for one person and the next person it's the medicine feels like poison to them. Often the reason that is, is because the neurophysiology is different. Yes, the outward symptoms may look similar because we kind of, uh, there are a lot of final common pathways to get into behavior, but the inward mechanisms may be quite different. Um, at the Amen Clinics, we've used neuroimaging and we've used more comprehensive diagnostic tools um, to figure out why this patient, why this client is different and then create treatment plans related to that specific patient. So often our clients that we come to see are looking for something different than the standard psychiatric model. They're, they've realized that their brain is different, they respond different. They need something that doesn't just fit the standard mold or model. Um, in the context of that, they've probably read some books, they've done some research and such, and they know that we do neuroimaging, and they want to know what their brain looks like. They want to get a sense of it. So we get people who may have depression, anxiety, ADHD. They just want to focus better. They just want to think better. They want to have better mood more consistently. They just want to sleep better. Many of these symptoms, and they'll come in and say, how can I do that? And what's happening in me that make some of these things challenging. Um, we take it back to the brain. So we've actually shifted or we are shifting um, in kind of the, the landscape from thinking of things as mental health as more as brain health. Mm -hmm. How is this client's brain health? If we can now work on their brain health, we can usually help optimize their, their function. So we are, beyond getting clients that come in that say, I have a problem, sometimes we get clients that come in that say, I'm doing great. Is there anything I could do to further optimize or maintain this so that not only am I doing great now at 20, 30, 40, but I want to be doing great at 50, 60, 70. Um, one of the reasons I personally like seeing kids come into the Amen Clinic, so even at a kid level, you know, whether they're, they're grade school, teenagers, um, just becoming young adults making that transition, is that none of us are born with an operating manual. You know, our parents try to teach us a couple of things, but even them, they're not given an operating manual for when the, the baby comes out. 
<laughs> and each person is a little bit different and has a lot of trial and error. So what we try to do is teach that individual about their brain as early as they possibly can, what it tends to need, what it tends to want, what it tends to want to do, what its strengths are. I spend half my eval time with, with clients talking about strengths, not talking about what they may be considered is wrong with it, but focusing on what actually that brain can do and do well and how to optimize that and then maybe reduce some of their susceptibilities to some other things. I'll give an example. People who tend to be obsessive can be detail-oriented and driven and use that at times to actually be very successful in business or in, in their careers and such. But on the other side of it, sometimes the obsessiveness can actually hinder them, cause anxiety, and, and, and slow their progress in certain things. So first recognizing that, hey, that part of your brain is the same part of your brain that's leading to both things. Let's optimize it for your successes and then minimize the, the negatives that it can sometimes sometimes cause. So those are, you know, those are the kind of clients we see here, people who may present with a symptom of people who just want to optimize their current level of function. Have you, um, what, what kinds of results do you see with kids, parents and kids that come in with ADD and ADHD? Can you give us an example of like a success, like what you, a, a parent kind of finds themselves at the end of their rope. They feel like, wow, I need to do something about this. This is hindering my child and, and um, his or her progress. You know, um, they come to you. Did you, do you. Can you think of a case study where Amen Clinic really helped that family through that time? So I'll answer this in, in kind of a, a mixed way because, yes, um, actually that's one of our areas of specialty. Um, ADHD especially. Uh, Dr. Amen wrote a book on this stuff, like literally. <laughs> uh, and it's very intertwined into our, our, our model of treating ADHD, recognizing that ADHD is not one thing. Dr. Amen has defined seven types of ADHD. If it's seven types, doesn't mean that everybody's going to respond to a stimulant. Um, so as far as successes, sometimes you do identify the person that responds well to a stimulant, and that's pretty easy and that's pretty key. You take the stimulant, they're like, oh my goodness, my brain works, it turns on, it's, it's lit up. And they go do the stuff and they enjoy the, the success of that and they move on. For others, it's a much more complex holistic approach. So the way I would define success in that one is, I'll give an example, having a, a family that comes in. Maybe it's the, the child is the identified patient, but the genetics for ADHD are very strong. So often you'll see symptoms in parents. Parents have found ways to kind of manage by the time that they reach their adulthood. Okay. They may have even used their ADHD for greater levels of creativity and entrepreneurship and build businesses and thought outside of the box and done great stuff. But now to parent a child like they were, it is, it's unfathomable. It's like, why can't the kid get it? Right? <laughs> um, so there's an element of when I see a success, it's not often just purely what the, the kid has a better grades in school. It's getting the parents to see, hey, there was elements of this in me, and this is how I got to where I'm at now. My, my child isn't problematic purely, or there's a, a disease here. I know we call the, these disorders but it doesn't have to be always purely seen that way. So a success will be shifting the, the stigma of a diagnosis of ADHD. So I'll see that as a part of a success. 
shifting the, the parent's approach to actually relating or managing their, their child. That's actually a key piece for me. Um, helping parents to see their child as, as future CEOs, basically. I'll use that term often, okay? As, um, hey, he's, the, he's got the race car driver. She's, she's going to run a company one day, okay? All that pushback, thinking outside of the box, don't, you don't have to crush it. You can direct them, but that thinking outside of the box is maybe why they're going to invent something or do something different, Okay. What are some of the symptoms that, um, that kids with ADHD have? Like, what, what, why, would they, why would they feel that, um, just for people who may not know so much about it? So ADHD has been, it's now become probably one of the more studied uh, psychiatric diagnoses. Um, there's a mix of, is it overdiagnosed? Is it underdiagnosed? It's probably both. Honestly, it just matters where you're at and where the model is. Is that um, the one where they usually prescribe the Adderall? Is that for correct? ADHD? Okay, correct. That's the most common prescription, right? So, so the basic presentation would be first things people will say is he just can't pay attention. I'll be talking directly to him, and his eyes are going all over. I'll ask him to say something I just said, and he's not paying attention. Okay, and that will show up in in, in girls too. One of the things that tends to show up all, uh, maybe a little bit more in males and females is that he's, he can't sit still. He's bouncing all over the place. I try to put him on the couch. He's rolling around. I mean, they'll come into my office, literally. They're flipping around in the office. They go, I had a little kid once who was trying to climb a book, bookcase. I, I don't need a, 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 any kind of – I almost don't even need a scan in that setting to diagnose him. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there'll be issues with that. There'll be issues with impulse control, follow through, forethought, insight, um, judgment. So insight, by the way, and judgment are part of ADHD symptoms at times, right? So you say, why, why isn't he learning from this? I've told him over and over and over. Um, there's an element of being able to take that knowledge, manipulate that knowledge, store that knowledge, and be able to reference it again in relation to that new thing that may pop up again, right? Thinking before speaking and doing learning from mistakes. So these are things that will show up in a kid, but actually can still show up in adults too. Um, and this will impact relationships, right? There'll be, and, and strangely enough, people will, will bond because they may have some opposites here. The, the ADHD person is more out of the box thinking, fun, impulsive, let's go do this. The other person who's a little more, you know, by the book, um, will say, wow, they're so fun. I've never had fun like this in a relationship before. And the other person who's more ADHD is like, wow, that person really helps me get things done. And it's beautiful. And they draw themselves together as adults. And then later on, they're married down the line. And it's like, why can't that person ever pay attention to me? He's too impulsive. Never focus on what I'm saying. Why is she always telling me what to do? And it's this back and forth that, that occurs. So it, it shows up very differently for kids. You know, it's usually more behavioral stuff. For adults, it can actually impact their relationships. So what do you, um, what, what, what is your recommendation? I know you said there's seven different types, so there's probably seven different kinds of rec recommendations for these different types of ADHD. Mm -hmm. Can you just um, let the audience know like what the book is that Dr. Amen wrote about ADHD and ADD? Do you have the title right there? Yeah, basically healing ADHD. 
Healing ADHD. Healing ADHD by Dr. Daniel Amen. Um, and he described seven different types of ADHD. Um, there's a more classic type. Um, there's a more inattentive type. So the classic type is more combining the two the, the, with the hyperactive and the inattentive. There's an inattentive type who's just purely inattentive. They can sit still. They can be sitting there, sitting still for the whole time. You talk to them for five minutes, 10 minutes, they're sitting still. They're not bouncing everywhere, but they're still struggling to, to actually retain any of that knowledge or, or respond appropriately. Um, there's overfocus type where that sounds weird. It's like ADHD and I thought it was an attention issue. How can you hyperfocus or overfocus? Well, they can hyperfocus to particular things. Mm. They can game for 10 hours in a row. You know, they might read a book if they're really interested for like a long time. But if they're not interested, they will struggle or they will really struggle with transitioning from one task to the next. Um, and for that, it is, it is different strategies for managing that also. There's a temporal lobe type, which can sometimes lead to more impulsive, more aggressive behaviors in, and more emotional based reactions and reactivity. Limbic type is more related to almost like a depressive element that's causing the attention and concentration motivation issues. Um, there's another, there's anxious type, which is, as you think of, a little bit more anxiety leading to almost more hyperactive looking symptoms, but it's more of an anxious presentation. That's actually what limits their ability to focus and get things done. And then there's a ring of fire type, which is the brain is just completely lit up. Um, it's very hard for them to actually regulate their own brain activity because every neuron is almost firing all the time. It's a lot of background noise. They can't hear you. They can't manage their impulses. That, that tends to go a different way. You're not going to treat that with a stimulant, which increases activity. Stimulants work for classic inattentive, maybe a bit for temporal lobe, but then on the other ones, they can actually make it worse. If you're, if you're already anxious and you increase activity in the brain, that kid's going to be more anxious. If they already have ring of fire where they can't control the activity of all the impulses that come through in their brain, you're going to make that worse with a, with a stimulant. Overfocus, they will even hyperfocus even more. They may get certain things done, but their mood regulation will dip and their mood will go down. So, yes, there's sometimes when you would consider using a medicine, but we try to focus more holistically as best as possible. It doesn't mean we'll never prescribe a medicine, but I try to make sure that we're doing all the things before that. Um, keep in mind that ADHD may not have always been symptomatic depending on the culture, where you're living, or what you're eating, right? If the kid wants to be running around, jumping around, looking for stuff all the time, super active. Imagine if you live in a hunter-gatherer, you know, run around in mountains, hunting, fishing, doing all that. Yeah. Would anybody have any problem with that kid? They'd be like, that kid is amazing. Look at the hunters. He's running all over the place, getting stuff. He was running for days. He didn't even get tired. Wow, he's amazing. You'd be eating from nature. You'd be no, no processed foods, no sugars. Everybody would love that kid. Now you try to get the hunter to sit in a classroom. Yeah. It's very, very difficult, right? So sometimes it's about finding the right classroom settings, getting the right accommodations, um, getting the right foods into them. We weren't built to eat as much processed foods and sugars as we get. You can't start out the day eating um, frosted flakes, sugar yeah. cereals, and then expect the kid to focus. Your brain does not run efficiently with that. So sometimes our dietary recommendations are shift up the, the, uh, the diet in the morning. 
just breakfast sometimes can Im impact them. Get them that first early morning exercise because that's how what their brain needs. That's if they were the hunter, they would have been running around for an hour and a half already before they had to go sit down somewhere. So it may not be an hour and a half of running, but you might try to get them to do 10, 15 minutes of something and then get them to be eating more proteins, more healthy fats, because that helps their brain run better. You then may then look at nutrient supplements, and there's all sorts of details on that piece, and healing ADD goes into it more, or if you came into the clinic, we could go into it more specifically for that individual. And like I said, on occasion, we'll use a medicine too, as needed. What does the assessment look like for a child? Because I know as an adult, you do um, a battery of um, tests, you know, like they're online tests that you're taking. How do you deal with those kinds of tests with children? There must be different, different forms of tests than the ones that I took when I came in for my scan. Yeah, excellent question. So um, the, the baseline aspect or, or the biggest thing that we, we focus on when we meet with any individual is collecting just a really good history. Yeah. Okay. One of the things most people will say is like, you guys actually ask me questions and talk to me the most. This is the most I've ever talked to a doctor about any other stuff or talked with anybody about any of this. It's extremely comprehensive. Yeah. So <laughs> we, we focus a lot of time on getting a good history. A good history helps us to be able to figure out what is, what may be impacting your presentation because there are things that people don't even think about that could be impacting how they, why they feel a certain way. The fact that they tended to, they took a lot of antibiotics when they were young for some or whatever reason as, and how that's impacted their gut health, but there's a gut brain connection and then a gut brain connection could impact how your brain actually functions now. Yeah. So asking pieces in the history about your other, you know, ear infections, other health related concerns can impact things or your, your history, your like family history and such, your developmental history, any histories of traumas. Trauma has been shown to change the neurophysiology of the brain. So that's physical trauma, like you got hit in the head, which is one of the biggest uses of spec scans. It's amazing at being able to detect those head injuries we forgot. Okay. Um, and then going from there beyond the spec scan, yes, we use a spec scan to actually look at the brain. We, and even in kids. Let's just stop there and explain what a SPECT scan is. It's oh, just perfect. Everybody knows, yeah. So SPECT is a type of neuroimaging, okay? Neuroimaging just basically means brain imaging. It's a type of. There are different ways to take pictures of the brain. You can do things like CT scans or MRI scans to mm -hmm. take pictures of the brain. This is a type. It's called SPECT. The long name is single photon emission computer tomography. No one needs to know that. Just remember SPECT. But what it's trying to do, it's, it's trying to follow the blood flow in the brain to use that to measure activity because they tend to go pretty much one-to-one. -one. So higher blood flow, higher activity, lower blood flow, lower activity. We have a pretty decent idea of what each region of the brain does, like your prefrontal cortex, like your temporal lobes, your parietal lobes, deeper structures too. And we also have a good idea of how much activity is normal or healthy there. If we see too much activity, if we see too little activity, you're more likely to correspond with a set of symptoms. And then it also gives us a target of treatment. There would be certain things that I'd want to do to target your prefrontal cortex, your temporal lobes, your basal ganglia, depending on how much activity we're seeing there. So if someone comes in with a type of depression or a type of uh, uh, anxiety or a type of ADHD, 
we then say, okay, to be more strategic in how we manage the symptoms, here are the things that we do for this region of the brain, this region of the brain, this region of the brain, and this is your plan. It's different than the next person because the next person may have different regions of the brain that are lighting up inappropriately. Okay. So that's how we use SPECT. And then we combine that SPECT with that history we've already attained. And then we also do some other, uh, we call them like psychometric testing, which is like more computerized based testing. So we do have a version of the computer test that we have adults do for kids. Uh, it's called the Web Neuro. Helps us be able to pick up some cognitive um, skills and testing there, like uh, attentional based things. And then we also have, it also helps us look at like uh, mood symptoms and, and such also, and how they kind of manage something like their positivity versus negativity. Um, that's a very key one. It's actually a determiner of resilience. If you tend to be a more positive person versus tending to be a more negative person, or your brain tends to focus on sweating the small stuff, um, you're more likely to be less resilient and you're more likely to struggle with depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Your brain switches to a more positive way, a positive outlook, gratitude-based outlook. Your resilience level goes through the roof. You can have stressors. You can have, you can even have an inefficient brain in other aspects, but I'll see those clients be able to manage and tolerate it significantly better than the other client who may even have a better, healthier-looking brain, but just has bad thought habits. Mm. Right? That's why it's still so important beyond whatever we do biologically to always still be working on skills like what you guys, what you teach. You know, I was thinking about um, one of the evaluations that I had the opportunity to um, observe. And, you know, it was this uh, young woman who was just graduating college and she was experiencing some depression and her parents were really looking um, to help her in a much more holistic manner rather than throw medication at her when it might not be needed. And I was just so impressed at how you managed her because, you know, there's this element when you talk to people about their mental health, they're, they're afraid, you know, um, like, yeah, a young kid is going to be afraid that maybe they're taking after their grandmother who wasn't mentally healthy, or maybe they have something really wrong with them. They've often been told they're crazy by their peers just because, you know, they might be a little more hot tempered or, whatever, you know, they, they feel a little crazy sometimes. And this young woman, I know she seemed to be struggling with those ideas and it, and it was difficult. And I loved what you said to her because you said, um, Hey, you know, look, you're, you're not operating, um, at your highest efficiency. So let's get you from a C to an A minus, you know, and the first thing, you know, you, you told her to do is you said, I want you to, um, you know, create some structure in your life. I want you to get up and have a really great breakfast. At the time, she wasn't working or anything, wanted to be, but just was immobilized, felt very frozen in her life. And you said, just get up and have a really good breakfast. He goes, I want you to work out every day. I want you to take your vitamins as I instruct you to do so. And that's all you need to do for a good 30, you know, days or so. And he said, you know, you're going to be, you said you're going to be feeling a lot better in three months if you just follow this protocol. And, you know, when I followed up with this young woman, sure enough, she felt so much better after three months. And 
her life opened up and just changed and she was able to progress in her life in, in a healthy way. And that's what really impressed me. You know, that's what I felt, um, you know, when parents are concerned about, you know, their kids, especially with depression, and there's a lot of depression that kids deal with for various different reasons, you know, like for various different reasons. And the brain scans, I think, are just um, really powerful, you know, because we take it for granted, like our kids are in sports, for example. We take it for granted that, you know, like a soccer player is bumping that ball with their head all the time, you know, and mm-hmm. that shows up in the brain scan, doesn't it? It does. It definitely does. So, um, by the way, thank you for bringing up that example. It's a great example. I mean, it's actually my, probably my favorite population to work with is, is adolescents going and transitioning into adulthood. And adolescence really has been extended beyond, okay, stopping at 18. In many ways, the adolescence extends into your mid-20s, okay? One of the things I remind people is that the, the prefrontal cortex doesn't actually finish maturing, developing until you're about 25 for females and even later for, for males. That's why it takes them all, you know, us men to catch up as far as maturity. So it can be like 27, 28 years old for males. So one, I tend to tell people that, look, all right, the first piece here is you're still figuring out your powerful brain. Okay, It's almost like you, you're in a plane, you're flying it, someone's teaching you how to fly a plane, it's already in the air, but they're still finishing building the wings. Okay, <laughs> They haven't even finished construction yet. All right? And that's what it's like learning to grow up into this world. And that's why sometimes for people who feel more, it can they can feel kind of almost out of control in sometimes. Um, I, sensitive people. Yes, and I tell my clients, I'm like, look, yeah, you're more sensitive, but you know who the people who create it, who are more creative and who change things and impact other people's lives, they tend to be the ones who are more sensitive. You just have to do a little bit more to take care of yourself. I, I give them the example. I'm like, I love to speak in analogies, so I'll actually use this one a lot. Um, you like the Ferrari, okay? You have a Ferrari brain. It's, it's It runs hot. It's louder. But it's a Ferrari. It's a fancy, super amazing Ferrari. You're going to drive faster. It's going to be sometimes harder to control. It's going to take a little longer to learn how to drive. But it's a Ferrari. It's amazing. So whatever car they like. Um, Versus if you you had a nice Tesla. Teslas are great, but they're going to be quieter and they can be fast too. But you're going to treat it and manage it differently than a person who has a Tesla. There's different things that I would have to have you do to take care of your Ferrari brain than the Tesla brain. Or if you had a nice, comfortable... Honda Accord or whatever, they're great, they work. Toyota Camrys, they're great, they work. Um, You may not have to do as much, but they're not the Ferrari. So initially, one of the biggest pieces in working with adolescents, the young adults, even older adults, is taking the stigma down. This is just brain health. This is not a weakness. This is you weren't born with a manual. Let's start working on creating your manual. Start with some of the basics. Do some of the basics a little bit better. Give your Ferrari brain the fuel it needs, and you tend to function better. Then add the other elements in there, too. Think better about yourself. Manage your negativity. Again, this is what I'm saying. This is why the work you do is so important. It's like reminding people that there are areas of life to focus on, and there's areas of life to, in some ways, gently, appropriately minimize. Don't focus on those negatives if they're not purpose, they're not impacting you in a positive way right now to focus on that negative. If you can use it to change yourself, grow yourself, impact your society in a beneficial way, then great. 
Um, so it's, it's one of the best ways I think to kind of engage this is removing the stigma. And that's why one of the reasons I love doing the scans, showing young, young adults their brain. Yeah, it's, it's so, um, it's so powerful. And I just want to reiterate, um, you know, when your child, when their prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed, oftentimes that can be a really an area of frustration that parents don't understand why their kids in college are doing certain things. You know, it's like they don't have the same um, ability to assess risk and they kind of have this sense that they're going to live forever. And, it, and that's kind of one of the reasons why, isn't it? Is that their prefrontal cortex isn't quite, it's not doing what it will do as they progress into adulthood. Yes, absolutely. Um, your brain actually rewards you at a younger age for risk, taking more risks. Okay, so um, your brain says, try new things, go new places, climb over that mountain, do whatever. Um, it's scary for everybody around them, but it actually, it's, it's almost necessary a little bit. There's an aspect of, as you start to develop your personality, your sense of self, there's an aspect of discovery that's necessary. And if you actually don't do that, it can actually be problematic, especially towards later development, later understanding of self. Um, it can show up in other negative behaviors. It's just around, the parent's role in that sense is just putting up those appropriate boundaries. Yeah. The not to the safe boundaries because there is a point where you don't want to fall off the cliff. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Go up close, figure out what's over there, but don't fall off. Right. Um, that's actually tends to be better. I mean, they've done different studies on this where they'll have um, like kids in a room that it's almost boundless. Right. Um, and the, the kid sits in the middle and you know, it's almost like a, imagine a big field kids sitting in the middle um, that's one setting. Another setting is a kid sitting in the middle, but there's some fences around the kid, um, you know, distanced away from the kid. Who do you think explores more? The kid with the defined boundaries. Okay, so the kid that has a fence around it, but there's some room to explore. So they go around to explore further. They actually sometimes have lower levels of anxiety because they have, they know how far they can go. So there's like, there's some freedom within having the structure. Yes, there's freedom in having the structure. So sometimes some parents will be like, I want to be my kid's friends. I'm going to let them do what they need to do. But it's kind of like creating that no boundary zone. Yeah. It's less safe. It actually sometimes increases anxiety. It can sometimes actually generally increase um, a loss of sense of self because they're trying too many things, get into too many things, and they, they lose themselves. But creating some healthy boundaries saying, hey, go this far, explore in this zone. And parents need to appropriately increase kind of push the boundaries out a little bit, right? You, there's a level of protection you would have for an eight-year-old kid versus a, an 18-year-old kid. Right. Right. Um, but boundaries can be necessary. Boundaries can be helpful. Boundaries can be helpful to development. Boundaries can even ex, uh, encourage someone to learn more about themselves and appropriately push those boundaries. That makes a lot of sense. I remember um, when we were new parents, Richard and I, um, <laughs> we just had this, this idea that, uh, jazz when she was born was just going to do everything we did. <laughs> and we were very spontaneous. We didn't have a lot of structure. We were entrepreneurs. So we pretty much made our own schedules. Um, and, and we noticed like she was whining a lot and, and we realized like we suddenly, I don't know how, I think it might've been, I think I might've been reading like 
you know, one of the parenting books. Um, and I started to realize, I'm like, oh my God, we don't have enough structure for her. She, mm-hmm. she needs to have structure. As soon as we realized that that was the problem, she just, it changed her whole, her whole personality. You know, yeah. we were the structure, we adhered to the structure and, and she was just a much happier, uh, much happier infant. And I learned, I learned that in that situation, I, I realized, wow, kids feel safe when they know what's happening, you know, exactly. when routine and they know what's happening. It, well, Richard and I thrived on spontaneity. It wasn't a great environment to raise a child in. And I'm really so grateful that we saw that really early on. That's a powerful message, and I, I want you to actually continue to please and um, repeat that to the people who listen to this podcast and your books and such, because it's so important. Um, if you imagine a baby in the womb, that's a very clear, strong boundary. One of the first, then they come out into this world, and there's all these levels of freedom. The neurons are firing more. Their arms are moving. They don't even know what's happening and dealing with it. It's, it's traumatic, really. Like, yeah, it's there's so much more stimulus. Um, and it's different stimulus. It was loud in the womb, but it was predictable loud. It was like a certain thing that they knew, right? Now, when they get out into this world and they're trying to understand this world and manage this world, and it just seems so boundless, that that analogy I've mentioned, a little kid in a boundless green park or something, it, it actually can sometimes be intimidating and cause more anxiety and more frustration. It's easier, it's better to create some appropriate boundaries around them, some appropriate structure around them, and then slowly expand that out as their capabilities increase. As that happens, that actually often sets them up to be more successful in grade school, to be more successful in high school, to be more successful as they transition from um, high school to adulthood and and college and, and managing those responsibilities. That's great. We're getting to the end of our time here, and I've just enjoyed this conversation with you so much. What would you love people to know about coming into the Amen Clinic? As just a last recap for our audience today. Um, biggest thing here is that we try to see each individual as unique, because you are. We want to know as much about you. We want to understand your history, your, your concerns. Um, we want to understand your goals. And then we want to partner with you to helping you reach those goals. We're not going to force you to reach your goals. We're going to create a tools and a strategy and a plan, and we'll be more than willing to adapt that plan as you see fit um, to help you reach your goals. That's what we try to do here at David Clinics. Yeah, and I just want to reiterate that what I was most impressed with is the holistic approach that it's a very comprehensive assessment. Um, you do a resting brain scan and an active brain scan, uh, a battery of uh, different tests that give the, the medical and mental history of the patient. And also um, the prescriptions are really both behavioral based and also they are nutrition based and vitamin based mostly. And then you will use medication if absolutely needed. But I love that you try to avoid that because um, what I've been able to understand and see is that when you restore the brain to health um, to its healthiest capacity that it can be, then it's like any other organ that you have in your body, your heart for a great example you know, give your heart what it needs and your heart gets healthy again. The brain is mm-hmm. 
So, um, so, you know, bravo to the Amen Clinic. And I just want to thank you, Dr. Amina, for taking the time. I'm hoping to bring Dr. Amina back again to talk about the aging brain and how we can um, make the brain ageless. And in that next interview we'll do, we'll talk about what we discovered about my brain scans too. So again, yeah. Thanks Dr. Amina. And thank you again. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for everybody who listened. I'm very excited to continue this conversation. All right. Thanks a lot, everyone. Thanks for listening. Share this with your family and friends and come back again. Don't sweat the small stuff. Live the big stuff. Bye. Thanks for listening. Do you want to lead a better, happier life? Introducing the new You Can Be Happy training course. Learn the five principles that will change how you live your life and improve all of your relationships. Learn more at happinesstrainingcourses.com.